Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a journey into the ancient church. I began looking into the history of my faith, the history of the Bible, how it was put together, why I worshipped the way I worshipped, and why others didn't. I bumped into the ancient Catholic Church. It really was inevitable in a study of church history, and there it was looming large. And once I began to read from Catholic sources about Catholic doctrine and dogma and what the Catholic Church actually taught, I realized that what I thought Catholics believed was often based on misunderstandings. Simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. I have real conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by Catholic Answers apologist Carlo Broussard to talk about purgatory. What do Catholics believe about purgatory? This is one of those perennial questions for apologists. It's one of the number one things you'll hear non-Catholic Christians ask, and even Catholic Christians ask too. Purgatory is highly misunderstood both outside and inside the church. Well, Carlo's here to unpack it and to explain it all for us. Hey, the amazing part about this interview is that Carlo has a book coming out about purgatory that I had no idea he was writing. I'd say that's definitely a God thing. (laughs) It's a great conversation, and I guarantee you'll learn something new and definitely understand purgatory, what Catholics believe about purgatory, a lot better. This podcast is brought to you in part by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. You guys help to keep this show going and keep this show growing week after week. Any donation goes right back into running this show. It covers hosting costs and equipment and all those kinds of things. If you want to help out, go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or a one-time donation at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Thank you so much for those who are supporting the show and thank you to you as well for listening. Without any further ado, here's my interview with Catholic Answers apologist Carlo Broussard on Purgatory. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for listening. It's a fantastic conversation this week. My guest is Catholic Answers staff apologist Carlo Broussard. Carlo is a popular speaker, the author of a number of, of fine books, including Prepare the Way, Overcoming Obstacles to God, the Gospel, and the Church, and his latest, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs. 
Carlo, I'm thrilled to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for being here. Welcome and hello. Hey, Keith, it's great to be back with you, brother. <laughs> it's going to be a great conversation. I'm sure you know this as an apologist, this, that's your career, answering these kinds of questions. But this, the idea, or the issue, I should say, of purgatory, Carlo, is one of those things that comes up so often. I mean, I had uh, Gary Machuda on the show a couple episodes back talking about, in quotes, why Catholic Bibles are bigger. And that's mm-hmm. one of the questions that often comes up in Catholic apologist circles. Why did Catholics add these books to the Bible? Of course, right. we didn't. So go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. Then purgatory comes up. And then if we can somehow work in sometime in the future, I got to get somebody on to talk about Mary and praying to Mary. You know, we'll hit all the three major issues. We I can think. do that too, brother. <laughs> you know, these are the major things. So purgatory, our topic here, is one of those uh, topics that often comes up, those confusing things that that non-Catholic Christians and even Catholics don't quite always understand. It, it just comes right. up continuously. So I want to jump into it, but I want to take a little baby step backwards because uh, in a discussion of purgatory, you'll, you'll hear things um, or you'll be asked to, uh, as an apologist, defend purgatory from the Bible. Where is purgatory in the Bible is, is, con- right. is usually that refrain. And I want to lay some foundational work here first, because in your book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, you do a fantastic job of this, Carlo, and you highlight how Catholic beliefs relate to the Bible. And that as Catholics, we don't actually need to use the Bible explicitly to defend all of our beliefs. But right. this this is misunderstood, as you know, you wrote the book on this, by non-Catholics, by even Catholics themselves. So, I wonder if we can begin here. Can you explain, right. just to lay the foundation for the relationship between Catholic beliefs and something like purgatory and the Bible? Yeah, right. Yeah, good question, Keith. So, as Catholics, we do acknowledge and believe that Scripture is a means by which God's revelation is transmitted to us. So it's actually a legitimate question to ask, is this particular belief found in this particular means of transmitting God's revelation? So that's a legitimate question to ask. But the problem comes up with our Protestant friends that if the answer is no— like it's not found in the Bible, whether even explicitly or implicitly, however you want to parse that out, well, then it necessarily follows from that, so our Protestant friends say, that we ought not to believe it, right? And we would, of course, challenge that premise and say, well, according to the evidence in Scripture in the first century Christian church, there's another means by which God's revelation was transmitted in an unwritten way, and that's what we call sacred tradition. So from the Catholic perspective, we want to look to the written form of God's Word to see if a particular belief is found in there, whether explicitly or implicitly. But it doesn't necessarily follow that if it's not found that we ought not to believe it because we can appeal to sacred tradition. So from the Catholic perspective, it's not absolutely necessary for us to find a biblical proof text or biblical evidence for a belief in order for us to believe it as a Christian and accept it as infallibly true, whether it's a part of the divine revelation or somehow intrinsically related to it, right? Now, that's not going to be persuasive for our Protestant friends, but at least we're being coherent in our Catholic worldview. 
Now, appealing to Scripture for the biblical evidence is necessary on a, on supposition that we're trying to evangelize our Protestant friend, right? So if we're trying to convince our Protestant friend of a particular Catholic belief, well then the means by which we try to achieve that end, namely showing the biblical evidence, whether explicitly or implicitly, would be a necessity on supposition that we're trying to evangelize our Protestant friend. And if by some chance you don't have an explicit reference to that particular belief and you can't defend it biblically, well, then you're simply going not you're going to have trouble trying to persuade your Protestant friend of that particular belief. But it doesn't mean that it's not true. So the relationship between Catholic beliefs and the Bible is that, yes, the Bible is a means of transmitting God's revelation. But it's not the only means. So from the Catholic perspective, we can appeal both to sacred tradition and sacred scripture in order to derive certainty about God's divine revelation. For the sake of persuading our Protestant friends, well, then we're in another ball game, And so we're going to have to employ uh, biblical evidence in order to persuade our Protestant friends of that particular belief. And then, of course, the Bible comes into play in conversation with our Protestant friends when they challenge our beliefs, which is what my book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, is all about, where they allege a contradiction, that our particular belief contradicts some particular passage, and that's when we, Keith, as Catholics, we have to get into the Word. We have to begin engaging in exegesis in order to show that our particular belief doesn't contradict some particular passage that a Protestant might pose to us. Yeah, I'm thinking of the first Catholic that I really ever met in, in university, and he asked me one day, we were driving somewhere, and he said, you believe in, he said, do you believe in the Immaculate Conception? And I was an evangelical at the time, and I said, well, no, it's not, that's not in the Bible anywhere, so I can't believe that, you know, why, how, right. how can you believe that? But really, right. as, a, as a Catholic, he could come back and say, well, my beliefs don't have to be found in the Bible, but, right. you know, oftentimes they are implicitly they are. or explicitly, right. but they also can't be contradicted by things in the Bible. So, if I came yeah. at him with a passage that says, outright, our Blessed Mother was not born uh, in this immaculate state. If that existed in the Bible, if it did, it doesn't, of course, right. of course. if it did, but, but if it did, then that would be a belief that he would have to, he would have to challenge and, and reconsider. But, yeah. as you're saying, as Catholics, our beliefs don't have, to, don't have to be found in the Bible, but they can't be contradicted by the Bible. Amen to that. And one other principle, Keith, just one last thought before we move on to our next topic here, is the idea that from the in, the, in our Catholic tradition, it is a permitted opinion to hold that sacred scripture contains, contains all of the stuff of what we believe. So it might not be there formally, right, which we need sacred tradition and the magisterium in order to form it. But once we cross the threshold that we know it's inspired, which we can't know by looking into Scripture, we need the Church for that, right, in sacred tradition. But once we're across that threshold of knowing what is inspired, well then that the content of that inspired text within the Bible contains the material stuff. So you might say that all of our Catholic beliefs are there present in seed form in some form or fashion that we have to extract from it. And so this is a key principle to remember when having a conversation with our Protestants. Yeah, sure, you know, a lot of our beliefs won't be explicitly there, 
but there are certain principles embedded in the written word of God that allow for us, when you put them together, to hold to this belief based upon scripture. (laughs) Very well said, of course. (laughs) All right, let's dig into the meat of this. And I know listeners have who've listened to the show for a while will know a bit about my story. I'm a convert, and many listeners are converts as well, or on the path to conversion. And uh, one of these things uh, in your faith life, you know. So I'm thinking of Peter Kreeft. I think I think it's him that puts it this way: the idea of a pebble in your shoe. And for me, the idea as an evangelical, the idea of purgatory was one of these pebbles in my shoe mm. that made me kind of wonder and think, and made me uncomfortable. You know, I came from an evangelical tradition, and lots of listeners to this show may be in the same place, where you said a prayer, you gave your life to Jesus, and you were saved. We had some debates on whether or not you could could do something bad enough to lose your salvation, but the point was, if I died as an evangelical Christian, I would, in the very next moment, I believe, be in heaven in the presence of Jesus. Now, this was one of those pebbles in my shoe, because I remember almost from the moment I became a Christian in high school, this rubbed me the wrong way. I couldn't understand how I could be this kind of sinful, miserable guy trying to be a Christian, often failing at times. And if I died, I would suddenly be in the presence of Christ and be okay with that. How did you move from potency to act, brother? <laughs> you know, I, I thought, I thought, would God just take over my will, just overwhelm my personality and make me perfect? Because nothing I knew imperfect could be in heaven. So this theology, almost in the beginning of becoming an evangelical Christian, this theology didn't make a lot of sense to me. And then I read, Carlo, I read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, which I think to this yeah. day is a very Catholic picture of the afterlife. And that began something in me. It made, it made this purgatorial idea kind of, kind of make sense to me. And that, that fit so much better for me in my understanding of, of my faith and my salvation yeah. and my relationship to God. And that made heaven make a lot more sense for me. So, right. I want to unpack this in some in some depth here, uh, okay? Because this, for me, this this idea of purgatory, this idea that no, I can't really just snap my fingers when I die and be perfect. God doesn't intend that for me. This this fit a, a piece of the puzzle that, as an evangelical, never made sense for me. So, right? Could you give us kind of a basic outline of what Catholics believe, which I think was echoed very well in the Great Divorce? What Catholics believe about purgatory? Yeah, Keith. You know, what you explained there fits many uh, Protestants and how they understand what we call sanctification, right? So, many of our Protestant friends agree with us that sanctification is a process and that it's an ongoing process. And so, before your death, you might not be finally or perfectly sanctified or made holy, but between death and glory, there's going to have to be some achievement of perfect sanctification based upon which I can enter into the glory of heaven, right? So there's got to be some sort of final sanctification or a final um, being made holy fit for the glory of heaven, because as you mentioned, Keith, Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean, nothing with uh, defilement can enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? And so many of our Protestant friends, when you pose it in that way, when you present it to them in that way, they can see the reasonableness of it. And this fits with an 
aspect of how the Catholic Church understands purgatory. So here's what the Catholic Church, here's how the Catholic Church defines purgatory. In paragraph 1030 in the Catechism, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, so those who die in God's grace and friendship, they are saved, right? These are the elect. But still imperfectly purified, or indeed assured of their eternal salvation, so it's not a second chance, they can't go to hell, they're assured of the glory of heaven. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness, there's your final sanctification, necessary to enter the joy of heaven. And in paragraph 1031, the church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So notice the catechism is presenting purgatory here as this final purification of the elect that takes place in the afterlife, in the intermediate state of existence in the afterlife between death and glory in the beatific vision, all right? So that fits, Keith, what you were articulating and how you're dying as a sinful person, right? You have sin on your soul, perhaps, but then you're entering into the glory of heaven. So how did you get from one state to another, imperfection to perfection, not completely sanctified to completely sanctified? Well, the answer is purgatory, right? It's this final purification. Now, Keith, it's very important for us to to, to go to move a step forward and ask this question. Okay, well, what is the object of this purification, right? So, like, what is being purified? in the state of existence in the afterlife called purgatory. Three objects in the tradition that we find. Number one, any remaining venial guilt on the soul is going to need to be taken care of. Any defilement on the soul of a venial nature, right? Because if you die with the guilt of mortal sin, you're going straight to hell. So those who die in God's friendship, if they die with any remaining venial guilt on the soul, that guilt, that defilement is going to be purified. Okay, and or number two, any unhealthy attachments to created goods. This is yet another effect of sin. Whenever we sin, we not only incur a guilt of sin, Keith, but we also incur negative consequences such as unhealthy attachments to created goods, inordinate attachments, inordinate tendencies, right? The Catechism points this out in paragraph 1472. Those, if one dies with such unhealthy attachments to created goods, and it's likely one's going to have such created unhealthy attachments if they're dying with the guilt of venial sin, but even if they don't die with the guilt of venial sin, it's possible to still have the unhealthy attachments, that's going to have to get taken care of. That's going to have to be purified. So that's a second object of the final purification. And now keep in mind, all so far, Keith, right now, we're within this framework of understanding purgatory as this final sanctification, right? What, what scholars refer to as the sanctification model. And several Protestant scholars actually affirm and embrace this sanctification model, such as you mentioned C.S. Lewis, right? There's a Protestant scholar, I think it's Jerry Walls is his name. Uh, the book is Purgatory, the Transforming uh, the Transforming Logic of Purgatory, or something to that extent. I'd have to look it up real quick. But notice that's the sanctification. There's one more object of the final purification, though, Keith, that's unique to us as Catholics. 
which completes the picture of purgatory, and that is the remission of any remaining debt of temporal punishment due to past forgiven sin. That aspect of purgatory is normally in the in the literature under the umbrella of the satisfaction model. And the and the idea is this that when we sin, we not only incur the guilt of the we not only incur the guilt of sin, we not only incur unhealthy attachments to created goods, but we also incur a debt of punishment. For mortal sin, that's eternal punishment. For venial sin, that's a temporal punishment, right? And what that means, Keith, is that there is a pain due to us for taking pleasure where we ought not to have taken pleasure. In God's divine plan and order of justice, which which simply means God's divine order for human behavior, that good behavior be associated with pleasure, bad behavior be associated with pain. When we sin, we're engaging in bad behavior and taking pleasure where we should have experienced pain. And so that divine order has to be manifest for the glory of God. So whenever we sin and we take pleasure in bad behavior where we should have experienced pain, there is a debt that incurs. In other words, there is a due pain to us as in consequence of our sin. And so if we and so how do we take care of that in this life? Well that's where like embracing involuntary suffering comes into play, right? Where we offer our suffering up or we inflict suffering upon ourselves for the sake of remitting the debt of temporal punishment. We call that satisfaction. When we do it out of love, it's called satisfaction, right? In the friend with friendship of God. So if we die, Keith, with any remaining debt of temporal punishment due for past forgiven sins, that debt must be remitted before entering into the glory of heaven. So the final purification involves three things that could possibly be purified and or, right? All of them at once, all of them together or one without the others. The guilt of venial sin, the unhealthy attachments to created goods, and any remaining debt of temporal punishment. So that sort of paints a picture, a complete picture of the Catholic understanding of purgatory and how it's more robust and more complete in comparison to how maybe a Protestant might understand purgatory. So most most Protestants who embrace purgatory affirm an aspect of the Catholic purgatory, but not the entire picture of purgatory. And that debt of temporal punishment, that's huge. And that's what our Protestant friends have trouble with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I want to I know you I know you don't shy away from the most challenging uh, challenges. <laughs> so I'm going to push right. back a little bit because I can imagine I, I would have as an evangelical when you're talking about debt and punishment yeah. Um, I would have pushed back as an evangelical and said, well, no, when I became Christian, Jesus was sufficient. He forgave my sins. He took on right. that debt. And so, when I die, I get to go to heaven. And, you know, again, if I'm speaking for myself, this wouldn't have made a ton of sense to me because I still couldn't understand at least the first two aspects, how I could love my Nintendo and die and the next day, have no Nintendo in heaven and be completely satisfied with that. <laughs> you know, I still have that unhealthy attachment. But on the third one, I would have pushed back as a Protestant and said, no, Carlo, Christ forgave my sin. I, mm -hmm. He was enough. He forgave that debt. Why, why are we talking in language of forgiving debt or forgiving, you know, this kind of punishment due to me? How would you yeah. answer that kind of pushback? Yeah, so here, here's the thing. 
the Catholic Church recognizes in paragraph 411 in the Catechism, going all the way back to St. Thomas Aquinas, that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to take away all punishment due to sin, both eternal and temporal. And in fact, the Catholic Church teaches that all debt of punishment due for sin, both eternal and temporal, is remitted completely initially in the sacrament of baptism, where it's all applied to us. The merits of Jesus' death on the cross is implied, applied to us in complete in a complete way, in such a way that if we die after baptism, Keith, we go straight to heaven. There's no need to endure a final purification to remit the dead of temporal punishment due for sin, right? So the question becomes, what did Christ will? Like, what? how did Christ set it up within his divine plan for post-baptismal sins? Did Christ will that saved Christians not have to suffer due pain to them for past forgiven sins, or did Christ set it up in such a way in will that saved Christians would have to suffer for wrongdoing even though they have been initially saved? So the question is not necessarily about what takes away from Jesus' death on, on the cross or not. The question is, what did Christ will? Because if Christ willed that saved Christians not have to suffer for past sins, and we're going around saying that saved Christians do have to suffer temporal punishment for past sins, we would be taking away from Jesus in that we would be contradicting his divine plan for how he intends his cross to relate to us, right? But if Christ willed in the deposit of faith, if we can see that in divine revelation— that Christ willed that saved Christians would have to suffer in some form or fashion on account of past forgiven sins, even though they're saved, well, then the Catholic belief of purgatory would cohere with that and wouldn't take away from the glory of Jesus' death on the cross because Christ willed that his death on the cross merit for us graces that would sanctify us when we do suffer on account of past wrongdoing. So the question is, is there what is what is the evidence in order to answer that question? What did Christ will? Well, as I'm going to point, as I actually, Keith, I'm writing currently writing a book on purgatory for Catholic Answers Press, and we're hoping to publish it in the fall. So please keep it in prayer. But as I point out in my forthcoming book, Keith, is we have to turn a key passage for the evidence is Hebrews chapter 12, and listen to what the author of Hebrews in, uh, says in verse six. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves, and watch this, chastises every son whom he receives. So notice we're talking about a son of God, so that's a saved Christian, right? And notice how the Lord not only disciplines, right, but he chastises. And that that word chastise in Greek has the connotation of like whipping and flogging on account of wrongdoing. It's very strong language, right? And then it's this understanding of the passage is supported in the previous verse in verse 5, where the author says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are punished by him. And the Greek, therefore, when you are punished, has the connotation of being punished for wrongdoing. So it's not merely that the Lord disciplines us to, disciplines us to make us perfect. It's that 
the Lord actually chastises us on account of our wrongdoing for the sake of being conformed to Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews states in in verse 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Sure, that's the end goal, conformity to Christ and his sanctity. But as the author of Hebrews reveals to us, the Lord chastises us and he punishes slash disciplines us on account of wrongdoing. And so what we have there, Keith, is evidence in sacred scripture that a saved Christian still has to undergo some form of suffering on account of past sins. Now, if that is true, well, then the logic of purgatory comes into play, at least the Catholic logic of purgatory concerning the debt of temporal punishment. Because if an individual son of the Lord, a Christian, dies in friendship with the Lord, right, as a son, meriting the inheritance of the final inheritance of heaven, and there's still some remaining debt, some due pain for past forgiven sins, right? Well, that debt is going to have to be remitted before the soul enters into the glory of heaven. So that's just one example. There's actually another example that we could get into, uh, and we might get into it here in a few minutes, but that's one. <laughs> Very well said. And I, and I I do want to circle around to some of the uh, biblical proof for purgatory. We talked about how it doesn't need to be explicitly or implicitly found in the Bible necessarily, but there certainly is some of this evidence in the Bible for purgatory. But one of the other common objections you hear, Carlo, is that the idea of purgatory comes out of this medieval notion of having to work out your salvation. And it's often Mm. lumped in with indulgences and these terrible things, uh, often misunderstood, I think, but still perceived as terrible that the Catholic Church did during the Middle Ages. So, is there a sense, I mean, obviously, uh, you and I would agree as Catholics now that this isn't the case, but the objection from Protestants often comes that purgatory was one of these medieval inventions. And, you know, a lot of this language around debt and temporal punishment, these things, they kind of sound a little medieval sometimes. So, how would you address that? Well, it's just simply false. It's not a medieval invention because, number one, we have evidence, as we're going to see in a few moments from Scripture, that the state of purgatory is a reality that I would argue is found in sacred Scripture. So notice the objection assumes that there's no evidence from Scripture that is a part of first century Christianity, right? So we could challenge that assumption. But secondly, it assumes that the idea of purgatory is totally absent from the subsequent generations of the apostolic, of the first generation of Christians. And that's false, because we have evidence, as I point out in my forthcoming book on purgatory, we have evidence of a temporary state of purgation that involves enduring punishment or suffering due for sin, as early as the turn of the second century in AD 200 in Clement of Alexandria Stromata, he's talking about the believer passing through the mansion, which is better than the former, to the greatest torment, taking with him the characteristic of repentance from the sins that he has committed after baptism, right? But then he goes on, he is tortured then still more, not yet or not quite attaining to what he sees others to have acquired. A little bit further down, and though the punishments cease in the course of the completion of the expiation and purification of each one, 
So even Clement of Alexandria in AD 200 is talking about a state of existence in the afterlife for the believer, he says, that is being, quote-unquote, tortured, that is undergoing some suffering, some punishment in expiation and purification for sins. So the evidence militates against this common myth that the idea of purgatory involving suffering and purification in the afterlife on account of sin is a medieval invention. We have the evidence right there from Clement of Alexandria. And then, of course, you know, we could look to the early church evidence of prayers for the dead and the liturgies and, um, and you know, ter- the Acts of Paul and Thecla and Tertullian, prayers for the dead, right? And prayers that their sins would be remitted, understanding venial sins. We see this in the Jewish tradition in Second Maccabees chapter 12, right? So, by far, the evidence shows that the idea of purgatory is not a medieval invention, and even the language of purgation, remitting the debt of punishment due for sin, expiation, is found from the get-go, right? And so it's not a medieval invention. <laughs> this is one of those things, and this is what uh, Gary Machuto, when I talked to him about the origin of the Bible and the, the canon, we bumped into this as well. It's one of these things that you don't even have to really take tackle this, the idea that purgatory was there from the beginning. You don't even have to tackle it as a theological construct. It's more of a historical thing. If you just look at the history of the writings of the early Christians and the liturgies and these kinds of things, even back, you said, into the Jewish um, in, into what the Jewish people believed. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a matter of history that purgatory was there from the beginning. I mean, if you look in the Jewish tradition, it was there before the beginning of Christianity and then right. became, you know, we had much like like many things from the Jewish faith, the Christians, you know, Christ fulfills and carries forward. So, right. Yeah. So, so yeah, and that's an important point because I, I I address this in my forthcoming book that you can establish the historical record that the idea of purgatory was a part of the early, a part of the Jewish first century Jewish belief and subsequent centuries as well, and even the Christian belief. But then you have to ask the question answer the question, well, why should I believe them? Because some Protestants will say, yeah, sure, Jews believe that. Well, I'm not going to believe what Jews believe. Or sure, the early Christians believed that, namely the early church fathers, but they were wrong, right? And so we shouldn't believe them, right? And so we have to be able to address that challenge as well and provide reasons why the testimony of the early church fathers is so important as a window into what was a part of historic Christian faith. And if you if you're not if you don't want to be a part or believe in harmony with historic Christian faith, well then, I guess you're willing to develop your own Christianity. Uh, yeah, I, I addressed this this question early on in my journey before I was even a Catholic, and somebody asked me a question like that. You know, why would why would you want to become Catholic? And my response was, well, wouldn't wouldn't you want to? practice the way that the the earliest church practiced. And the response at that time from this person I was talking with, well, why is older better? And I was a little taken aback. You know, I've had years now to process this. And I think my answer now would be, Carlo, it's not about older being better, but it's, it's, right. it's about more authentic being better. It's about, you know, what did Christ pass on? And how we know that is how those Christians who were closest Amen. to Christ, you know, practiced that. Right. It's not, it's not the oldness, 
right? And on the flip side, it's not novelty that excludes the practice, right? It's that this practice was closest to Jesus and the apostles, which gives us greater reason to think that this is what the apostles were preaching. And if that's what the apostles were preaching, well, then we need to follow it, right? Because it's coming from Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely. So, let's get into some of these biblical proofs. I don't, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time here, because okay. as you said, we you know, as Catholics, we don't need to necessarily ground every single thing in, 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 in boatloads of Scripture. But at the same time, we can find, and we do find, and the Catechism refers to these things. You've given us already an excellent idea idea uh, using this text from Hebrews, which is very fascinating to look at that in, in light of purgatory and how we as Catholics understand that. But where else can we find purgatory in the Bible? Yeah. So that Hebrews text, what that did, Keith, is establish a principle that's a part of divine revelation that's fundamental to the Catholic teaching on purgatory, right? And so in my forthcoming book, I have a chapter where I lay out six revealed principles that undergird the doctrine of purgatory, or you could say from which you can conclude the doctrine of purgatory. But I also argue that I think there are some passages in Scripture that reveal to us this inter intermediate state of existence in the afterlife between death and glory of a final purification. So, for example, you could appeal to Matthew twelve thirty two, and that's if we're going to start with Jesus. Jesus says, whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this statement has been interpreted by many Christian theologians throughout the century, uh, throughout the centuries of Christianity as implying an, a state in the afterlife where sins can be forgiven. Notice Jesus says, though, a sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. The implication being that some sins could be forgiven in the age to come. And we could find this in St. Augustine, Pope St. Gregory the Great that was very fond of this passage. It's even referenced in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in its section on purgatory. So I think, and, and of course, there are many counters that our Protestant friends will pose to us in interpreting it this way. We don't have time to get into them. But the age to come, you can establish a an understanding in Jesus' teaching that the age to come refers to the afterlife. Now, in other places where Jesus speaks of the age to come, it's referring to heaven, but we know that given the certain characteristics of his teaching and what he's saying about that age to come. In this case, when he's speaking of the age to come, in light of his teaching, we know he's referring to the afterlife, but given the fact that the implications that there are some sins to be forgiven implies that this is not heaven that he's referring to, but what we call purgatory. And Keith, and especially when you read this passage in light of what the Jews of Jesus' day believed, in light of 2 Maccabees 12, that some sins could be remitted in the afterlife, well, then that sheds a whole new light and gives very persuasive reasons to interpret this passage like the Jews would have understand it. The reason why Matthew records this, whereas Mark doesn't, when Mark talks about this teaching of Jesus, is because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, so he would have known that the Jews would have been wondering whether this sin 
could possibly be forgiven in the afterlife. So Jesus, so Matthew records this teaching of Jesus, and Jesus is appealing to his Jewish audience and saying, yeah, I recognize some sins can be forgiven, but this one is not going to be forgiven in the afterlife. Now, that's from Jesus. Now, as far as Paul's teaching, we have a clear example, I would argue, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. And like you said, Keith, we don't have time to get into all of it, but there, St. Paul teaches that on the day— and he's referring to the day of judgment, which according to Hebrews 9.27 comes in the afterlife, after death. He's talking about the day of judgment. One who builds upon the foundation of Christ. That's a saved Christian, Keith, because the foundation of that individual is Jesus, right? And furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, we know he's saved because Paul says he will be saved, right? As through fire. So we're talking about a saved Christian. On the day of judgment, the works of the Christian are going to be tested by fire, Paul says. Bad works, such as wood, hay, and stubble, or wood, hay, and straw, wood, hay, and straw are images of the bad works. They're going to be burned up in the fire. If the individual has good works represented by gold, precious stones, and silver, that's going to remain in the fire, right? But Paul tells us, that if the bad works, if he has bad works, they will be burned up in the fire and he will suffer loss. Now, notice there, Keith, a saved Christian on the day of judgment is going to undergo some suffering, some form of suffering. However you want to parse that out, we can debate about that. But that there is suffering on account of bad actions, namely sins, venial sins, right? You have suffering on account of bad actions. That's temporal punishment due for sin in the afterlife, brother. <laughs> right? So that's a, a, an aspect of purgatory. But yet Paul says that individual will be saved, though as through fire. So for Paul, the individual goes through the very, quote-unquote, fire that his works go through, which connects the purification of the works with the purification of the individual. So it's not that the works are being purified apart from the individual. The individual goes through the same fire and suffers the loss on account of the wrongdoing. So that's a final purification here in the afterlife that's neither heaven nor hell that is remitting any sort of due pain for past sins. And the consequence being the reward of eternal life. What do you call it? We call it purgatory. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the reference to flames, because this is one of those references yes. that are, is often associated with hell, of course. It's kind of a stereotypical right. image of hell is these flames. Uh, but also, as you mentioned just now, especially in Paul, associated with, with purgatory, this burning away of, of stuff. So, I mean, what do we make of, I guess... I guess this dovetails into the suffering as well, because this again is another question that I that I that I have, and I think you've addressed this fairly well already. But I mean, the idea of flames and suffering—I mean, that sounds like uh, a pretty miserable place, a pretty painful and difficult and dark place. But yet, these are saved Christians; these are people who've died right. in friendship with God. So, what do we make of all this this suffering and pain and fire and flames? Yeah, yeah. Well, the image of fire definitely connotes the idea of suffering, right? But as the author of Hebrews stated in Hebrews 12, 10, or 6 through 10, specifically verse 10 being the end goal there, 
the suffering or the pain that the fire represents is ordered to conformity to the goodness of Christ, to the sanctity of Christ, to be completed in holiness. That's the end game, right? Now, this idea of fire connoting the idea of righteous purification, right? A good purification, of course, purification is a good thing. Fire is not only associated with eternal torment and hell. In the Bible, Keith, fire, burning, these images are associated with the the motif of purification. So, for example, in Psalm 66, 10 through 12, God, the Lord has tested us, brought us through fire. Isaiah 6, 6 through 7, the coal, the famous story of the coal, the angel taking the coal, touching the lips of Isaiah and taking his guilt away. Isaiah 4, 4, speaking of washed away the filth of the door of daughters by the spirit of burning. So fire in scripture is an image, a metaphor to connote the idea of purification and take um, remitting that which is defiled in order to bring about something more pure, right? In 2 Peter 1, 7, Peter uses the motif of fire testing our faith, right? Just how fire refines gold, so too our sufferings refine our faith, right? So, the idea of fire, although it does connote suffering, it's not all doom and gloom because the suffering is ordered to a greater goal, which is conformity to Christ. That's the motif of purification, so that we can be purified of our defilements or anything impeding us from being conformed to Christ, so that we can more perfectly be conformed to Christ. And that's holiness, So that's what the suffering is all about. Now, whether the fire is material or not, that's not a part of church teaching. The church teaches there will be a form of suffering, but whether there will be an actual fire that somehow detains the spiritual soul, and St. Thomas Aquinas speculates about this, right, and the possibility of a material fire detaining an immaterial reality such as a separated soul. He argues it's possible, but whether purgatory entails that or not, that's not a part of church teaching, that's pure speculation. And then there's also the question of how can a separated soul experience quote-unquote pain, and what is the nature of that pain, right? Is it something akin to sensory pain as we do in the body, like God somehow activates the sensory powers dwelling in the soul that aren't active yet, right, without material fire, or is the pain of a spiritual nature without any sensory powers being activated? And theologians and philosophers debate about that stuff, <laughs> which is not which is not a part of official church teaching. But that there is suffering, we can affirm that. All right, so I guess this leads into, for me, the other question, that's the idea of time. You know, you often hear, and this is, I think, one of Again, maybe those maybe uh, inventions of the Middle Ages, these medieval kind of constructs you hear, the church is selling indulgences to get time off purgatory or do certain things and get time off purgatory. Is there... Is there a way to measure time? Does the Catholic Church say, hey, if I love playing video games, I need to spend a certain amount of time in purgatory to shake myself from that uh, you know, unhealthy attachment? Can we measure right. purgatory like that? Well, yes and no. So there's going to be a similarity and dissimilarity. So will if the question is, will there be proportion – between the amount of unhealthy attachment to created goods and the duration of my experience in purgatory, 
as I argue in my forthcoming book, I answer in the affirmative that yes, there will be a proportion between the two. So the more unhealth, the more unhealthy attachments or the greater degree of unhealthy attachments that you have to created goods, I would argue the longer of the duration in the state of existence that we call purgatory. But how to measure that duration is different than the duration of our existence as embodied souls within the corporeal realm with our bodies, right? So we experience time and the measurement of time now as sort of this progressive actualization, this progressive experience where we're moving from one state to another. There's this progression, and in that measurement of movement is what we call time within this world, within our bodies, right? But change for a non-corporeal being, such as a separated soul or even for the angels, there is change, but it's not change as we experience it now in the body. The change is called is, – is, is, is an instantaneous change. So the sort of time uh, for a separated soul in purgatory and in the afterlife, theologians and philosophers call it eternity, which is a middle state or experience of change that's not eternity of God where there's no change whatsoever, nor is it the change experienced for embodied souls, right, where we are experiencing change now. They call it eternity or discontinuous time. So there are instantaneous changes from one state to another. So for a separated soul in purgatory, it may very well be that the soul undergoes a variety or multitude of instantaneous changes that will be proportioned to the degree of unhealthy attachments to created goods or the amount of due pain for the soul on account of past forgiven sins, you see? So the, I argue, as, my, as I argue in my forthcoming book, I do think there is duration. Now, this is not a part of official definitive teaching of the church. So the church doesn't give us an infallible teaching as to, the, as to whether there is duration in, the, in purgatory and the nature of that duration. But I do think there is good reason, theological reasons, to conclude that there will be duration in purgatory, but the nature of that duration will not be as we experience change in the body now. You know, the idea of, you know, in the past of associating, you know, you'll get so many days or so much yeah. time off purgatory, that language was simply used in order to express that the act of love or penance, the act of love, which in this case would be a penitential action, was equivalent to the amount of days of penance in the ancient church that you would have to undergo in order to be remitted of the debt of the temporal punishment, right? But because there was great confusion with that language of remitting days and time off of purgatory, the church did away with that with regard to indulgences, right? So it was just trying to draw a parallel between this action is equivalent to so much time of penance in the ancient church. But because of the confusion it caused, the church did away with it. All right. I want to ask you one last question, Carlo. And I know that our listeners, they can't see you, but you're a big guy. You you work out. You're you're fit. But I want to ask you. Well, during COVID-19, I haven't been able to work out, man. (laughs) That gym's closed, and I haven't been able to get there. All right. Well, regardless, I want to ask you to be a pebble for a minute, which would be hard even if you weren't working out, I think. Because 
for me, Purgatory was one of those, as I said before, like, you know, pebbles in the shoe of my evangelical faith. I just couldn't understand my salvation, how God could wave a wand and I could go from being a miserable sinner, trying my best to, to, to be perfect enough to meet God face to face in the moment that I died. It didn't make sense to me. So, Carlo, I wonder if you can be that pebble in someone's shoe just for a moment. And I wonder, what would you say about purgatory in particular to just make that non-Catholic Christian think a little bit deeper about their understanding of it? Well, I think it's along the lines that you've already articulated, Keith, and that is to say, do you think that when you die, you are going to be absolutely perfected without any stain of sin or any unhealthy attachment to a created good? Do you think that when you die, your will will have such a degree of charity that you and your soul will have such a degree of charity that your will will be completely and utterly detached from any created goods in an unhealthy way and that your attachment to created goods will be perfectly in such a way that is perfectly ordered to your attachment to God. Do you think you will be able to really achieve that state of perfection which is required for the glory of heaven? So that's a question to get them to understand. I mean, if anybody's honest with themselves, they're going to probably say, you know what? No, I'm not really that that perfect, and I don't know if I'll be able to die. I mean, by God's grace, maybe, perhaps, but given my circumstances now, I don't, I don't know. And this, Keith, is where the doctrine and the revelation of purgatory is good news, because this is God's way of showing his mercy to us, that God is doing and has given us everything. He's doing everything he can and given us everything he could in order for us to spend eternity with him in the glory of heaven. Given the nature of the beatific vision and what that involves, there is no possible, I mean, I can't say no possible way, but it is highly unlikely that any of us are going to die with such a fervent degree of charity in the soul that we will have no guilt of venial sin, that we will have no unhealthy attachment to created goods, and that we will have no debt of temporal punishment remaining for sin due to us. It is highly unlikely that we will die in such a state. And so given that reality, the revelation of purgatory is a great gift that God has given us, manifesting to us his love for us and his desire for us to be with him for an eternity in heaven. And so rather than purgatory being bad news, right? I would argue as I do in my forthcoming book, that it's good news. And thus, a support of the Evangelion, it's a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it manifests God's love and mercy towards us. <laughs> Amen. And you know, that's exactly how I found it when I discovered purgatory and, and really began to understand it, uh, understand what Catholics believed and taught about it. It was, it was this great mercy for me. I thought, wow, you know, God is opening that door to his love to to live with him in, in, in eternity so wide. He's, you know, he's doing everything that he can do to, to bring us into relationship with him. And here's just another mercy that he has extended to us, right? It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> All right, well, Carlo, this is funny because truly, I, I don't know if you even knew this, but I didn't know you had a book coming out on purgatory. So that's very right. exciting. It's very timely. Yes, so please, amen, amen. So please keep that in prayer. And in fact, the working subtitle, so the working title is Purgatory is for Real, 
the subtitle is I think something like good news for those who die and aren't perfect yet, right? <laughs> and so it gets to what we were saying here that the that the revealed dogma of purgatory is indeed good news. It's a joyful truth for us as Christians. Well, that's just perfect. Where else can people go? I mean, where can they go to keep track and wait for that book to come out and read the other things that you've written and, and hear more from yeah. you? Where can they go, Carlo? Well, to follow the work that I do at Catholic Answers, articles that I write in uh, Catholic Answers Live, appearances and stuff, they can go to carlobrusard.com. All of the work that I do at Catholic Answers and publish is sort of located there in one spot because what I put out at catholic.com, which is the website for Catholic Answers, gets lost in the feed pretty quickly because we produce so much content. So, but if they want, they can go to catholic.com and all the other good stuff that we have there. They can go to shop.catholic.com to get my books, Prepare the Way, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. And if they follow Catholic Answers and sign up to their daily emails, then they will definitely know when my forthcoming book on purgatory comes out in the fall. <laughs> That's perfect. And you know, I would never I would never presume the Holy Spirit to be working through this podcast. I I'm a humble vessel. I try and remain that way. I mean, cordial Catholic is it's a monochrome trying to live up to. But you know, the the Holy Spirit, I think indeed Carlo brought you and I together today because I really had no idea you were working on this book on this topic and it's just absolutely perfect that I managed to to snag you on this hey, Amen, brother. Fantastic discussion. <laughs> thank, yeah. thank you so much, Carlo. I want to say God bless you. God bless your writing, your speaking, the fantastic work you're doing for the church. Hey, Keith. Thank you, buddy. It was, it was a pleasure to be on with you. I had a good time. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> As always, thanks so much, Carlo. Take care. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Carlo and I on Purgatory. Be sure to follow him at his website to watch for his forthcoming book. <laughs> it's a little bit of God providence there that he was on this show to talk about that book because truly, friends, I had absolutely no idea. He mentioned the book and I thought, what? <laughs> what book? <laughs> That's just incredible. TheCordialCatholic.com for my website, for show notes for this show, for my blog, to follow what I'm doing and writing as well. CordialCatholic at gmail.com is the email address. Please let me know who you are, why you're listening, where you're listening from. I'd love to hear from you. I write back to every email I get eventually. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, Cordial Catholic on Twitter, and Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic if you feel led to support this show. Thank you so much, friends. If you can subscribe to this show, leave a rating or a review, that'd be fantastic. Those ratings and reviews help to push this podcast out to new people, as do your subscriptions or your follows on Spotify, wherever you find this podcast. Please tell a friend if you think they might like this show. That helps to grow and helps to reach new people. That's the whole point of this thing. So please do. Thanks so much, friends. I'm praying for you. Please pray for me too, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much, guys. God bless.
This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.